Welcome to Behind the Movement. I am Kyle Fincham. Thank you so much for downloading the podcast. Uh, Today, I've got a wonderful conversation with Soichi Porchetta uh, to share with you. Before we get to it, I would just want to say happy holidays and happy new year and remind everybody that if you are interested in picking up what I'm putting down, um, you can sign up for the Movement Brooklyn uh, online platform. I do a weekly class on there as well as a weekly office hours to support people's practice and, and give some advice and some direction and try to answer questions as best I can. Um, and then I also put up some weekly videos and we have monthly themes. The month of December, the theme was, or the focus was resilience. And then going into January, the focus is going to be play. So the classes and a lot of the weekly videos are, are built around the, the monthly focus and it's a live platform, so it's a place where it's not just content going one way. It's a two-way conversation, so it's got like a feed to it, so everybody can join in and participate in the conversation and share ideas and um, support one another as best we can. So if this is something you're interested in, you can go to members.movementbrooklyn.com or just movementbrooklyn.com. And um, and if you're interested in following me on Instagram, you can just look up at Kyle Grit. All right, let's get to the podcast. Uh, This was an awesome conversation. I really enjoyed getting the opportunity to get to get to speak to uh, with Soichi. Um, And I realized it was also uh, the the largest distance between me and the person that I was speaking with that I've done for the podcast. Uh, Soichi is is based in Australia, so it took some uh, creative scheduling to uh, to get us on a call. Um, and she was calling from Monday while I was still in Sunday, so she got to tell me a little bit about the future. Um, but as I said, Soichi is based in Australia, and she's a movement and meditation teacher, and she's been practicing for over 17 years um, and teaching for the past nine. Her formal movement practice began with martial arts, which culminated when she became Muay Thai world champion in 2011. Soichi then transitioned into a generalist movement practice in 2013, when she began studying personally with Ido Portal and Odelia Goldschmidt. She studied with them for about four years, and today she studies movement with Yosef and Linda of Fighting Monkey, um, and has a spiritual mentor named Rajiv Kapoor. I can't say enough good things about um, this conversation I feel like I say that about everybody, but I really do mean it. I feel like I, I take away so much from from these wonderful conversations. And uh, this one is no different. And I look forward to the opportunity to do some traveling again and visiting her and taking class with her in Australia. So with that said, here it is. Soichi Porchetta. So I, I read your your bio on your website before 
before we we started and i was reading about how you started with gymnastics and like martial arts it's like a pretty eclectic background uh like a pretty yeah so i'm I, I think you're maybe the first person that I've spoken to that actually has like a, a, a background in, in, in professional or like semi-professional martial arts. Oh, amazing. Yeah. So that, that's pretty amazing. What, I guess like what drew you into like Muay Thai and BJJ and stuff like that? Um. I think I was just supposed to, they, they were necessary parts of my journey. Um, because during my early childhood, like I loved playing and climbing trees and playing with animals and being in nature. But when it came to any kind of exercise or sport or physical activity, um, it was, uh, there was no connection. It was almost traumatic like I hated it there was just like uh, anxiousness and clumsiness and uh, not looking forward to it so um, the the first thing I did was gymnastics which was like one of my classmates was doing after school I was around nine or ten years old and I thought okay I'll, I'll join and try and actually I really liked it um, and and I improved very quickly at it I got good at it like especially compared to everything else it was almost like a shock like I couldn't touch my toes or if I ran I'd get a stitch and um and suddenly I found something that I I had a coach that saw potential in me and the training peers were friendly and um I just got obsessed with chipping away at little things um, and I think I may have mentioned on the website that like I moved countries very frequently, like roughly every two years. So often I could not continue um, the sport or thing I had chosen because the new place didn't have it. Um, but I developed a, a keen interest for solo training, I suppose. So if it was like a team game or even track and field, I, I didn't take to it that well. But gymnastics gave me that like oh i can stretch on my own and learn explosive things on my own um so i actually ended up not really doing anything until i was 15. um so through my early teens i just went to school and ate junk food and i was just a skinny uh, teenager <laughs> um and my my father was doing tai chi so he was living in barbados where i was i had moved to at the time he's still living there now and he said um you know why don't you come and check out the club i'm at like we're doing tai chi but the young people are doing wushu um and maybe you'll like it it's quite gymnasticky anyway and i thought okay why not um and i started to become kind of uh, vain, like 14, 15, I was like, oh, I need to do some sit-ups and go running so that, you know, I have like a nice teenage body rather than like a flabby body or whatever it was. So I was like, that sounds more interesting than just doing the sit-ups in my room and, um, and going for a jog around the neighborhood. So I went and there was just this instant, um, 
thing that switched on in me. Like it's either not on or it, it was like 200% on. Um, and again, I was clumsy. I, I was like, this is so different. It's so foreign. Um, but there was just like almost an instant addiction. Um, so I would just practice a few hours a day on my own and go to every class that they gave during the week. And the coach wanted me to prepare for like competitions within a couple of months of me training. Um, but again, I moved countries and they didn't have the same quality of school. Uh, so I, I didn't continue with that martial art. Um, and I would also get quite attached to my teachers. Um, so that was hard moving. Um, it, I would go to like a club and like a sports club <laughs> and see that maybe it was more commercial or they were doing like fancy stuff, but the essence was missing. I don't know, like whatever that pulled me in the previous place would not be in the new place, but I would find it in the new art or sport. So um, yeah, one thing led to another and I ended up starting Brazilian Jiu Jitsu in Hong Kong. So I had uh, at the time a boyfriend who was doing it. And I, at first I was like, oh, he's wearing this ugly white thing that stinks and is always wet. I'm not gonna do that sport. It's just gross. Um, but I had already played around a little bit with some wrestling and I liked that primal feeling of that close body body work and um, and like seeing how it's it's like a human chess game um, so in Hong Kong I decided to try and that thing switched on again um, and by then I was maybe 19 um, and I became I was very scared, but I became very hungry to compete. And that was something that was new because I, before I just liked to practice, like train consistently and hard um, and receive praise from the coach and, and like, or like we're talking, chatting earlier about like, you know, when you're a new kid on the block, maybe you need to like prove yourself or, or develop those friendships. And like, that was another challenge. I was like, I need to like, you know, become friends with them. And often like, especially with kids and teenagers, they can be kind of mean and tease you or like, if you like fall flat on your face, they will just like make fun of you. So I was very determined to earn the respect of my peers and the love of the coach. Um, so in jujitsu, this new thing came where I wanted to compete and I was just like, always preparing and looking for any competition I could do. But this was a long time ago, like, uh, I don't know, maybe like 13, 14 years ago. Um, so there were very few women at the time, like now there's tons, amazing women in all weight categories and so many female black belts globally. But at the time it was so new um, and I was also a student with not much money and, and you had to like pay competition fee and flight and accommodation. So it was a big, like, I, it would take me ages to save up to be able to compete. 
and maybe I would fly from Hong Kong to Manila or somewhere else. And there would be two girls, one is 70 kilo, one is 40 kilo, and uh, one is a purple belt, one is white belt, one is blue belt. And they'd say, well, you can all leave with a gold medal or you can all fight each other um, and see. And I would always choose to fight. I was like, well, I didn't fly here just to take a little medal home. Right. And um, it, it was just like very hard to get to compete. Um, it would take ages and there'd be few competitors. Um, and at the time I was also doing Thai boxing for fun once a week with my girlfriends because they were not into jujitsu. It was a bit like yucky, uh, but they were really into the striking stuff. So I do it as a social thing. Like we train and go for dinner. Um, and the gym owner of the Thai boxing gym said, oh, they're looking for someone your weight. Would you like to try a competition? And I was like, oh, I guess so. Why not? Like, it's not my favorite sport, but I can just change the ratio. I'll come for the next, you know, eight weeks to like every Thai boxing class and just do jujitsu once or twice a week instead. And I was like in shape and um, used to competing. So I did that and it was a really, really positive experience. I won the fight. I didn't get hurt. The girl didn't get really hurt. And I was like, wow, that was so much fun. Um, I still like prefer jujitsu, but I saw how frequently um, there were Thai boxing matches and my weight category, which was in Hong Kong. So I'm only 50 kilos and I used to fight at 45 <laughs> kilos. Um, there were a lot of small females so I was like I think if I choose this sport I will get to compete more frequently and you also get some pocket money for fighting so in the end you may even cover your expenses rather than have to save up to be able to compete um, so I chose the sport that allowed me to compete more and and I became kind of obsessed with that and then I um, I started to make frequent trips to Thailand because Hong Kong and Thailand are very close. And I was like, this is perfect. Like I was thinking um, after university to go to Brazil for six months to like, you know, study jujitsu, but this is so much easier. I can just nip over to Thailand all the time. And after I graduated um, at uni, I studied anthropology. I just went straight to Thailand and spent uh, six months there living in the camp and fighting full time and it was one of the best times of my life so there was this like insatiable hunger to to like keep growing and testing myself um, and at the time I identified more with a masculine energy like I had this unhealthy um, or, or very like limited, um, perception of the feminine. So I saw feminine as weak and flimsy and, um, I saw the masculine as like powerful and conquering and I wanted that. So I think I was looking for a kind of empowerment, um, through competition so in training, I would always seek out the alpha males and try to compete with them. It was like, like I, I felt feminine, like um, in many ways, 
but there was, I thought that to be powerful, I had to be more masculine. So I was never really a tomboy or anything like that. But there was this like almost seeing as the feminine part of me as inferior in a way. Um, but I deeply respected all the women I trained and fought with. Um, and I saw the opponent like as a reflection of the self. And actually we are all reflections of the self, right? So it was kind of without me knowing um, a pull towards spirituality in a way. I didn't know it at the time, um, but like when I would fight, when I'd be, especially in the ring, which is where I did, I spent more time in the ring than on the jujitsu mats when it came to competition. Uh, that state of presence, uh, complete presence with no uh, thought or emotion or very limited thought um, where you're just like in a flow state um, and just having that person in front of me as a feedback, a mirror pushing me um, and knowing that, you know, it wasn't like how fit or strong or technical I was, it was how much I could let go and allow those movements to flow out of me. Um, obviously, I had to be fit and strong and technical, and that was done in the training, but mm -hmm. it's not done intellectually during the fight um, and feeling this awe for the opponent and a deep like respect um, or even love without any attachment. Like you would literally say bye and probably never see them again and you don't like think of them or miss them but that moment shared with them is irreplaceable and you have changed as a human being as a result of spending those few minutes with them um, and you needing each other to get there because if I want to be this you know brilliant Thai boxer I cannot do it without someone trying to stop me from being a brilliant Thai boxer and I'm doing the same to them so there was this like amazing feeling and uh, no matter how hard the training was or how much I was terrified of the fight but on the like few hours leading up to the fight after every fight and you'll hear every fighter say this pretty much until they retire is um I can't wait to fight again so in the morning oh you're like oh I, sh I wish I had a different hobby someone's just gonna kick my head in I'm so scared I don't want to do this I wish I did knitting or flower <laughs> arrangements um and and just like stewing in your nerves and then um come to like the moment of the fight is this indescribable magic and then after the fight is like I gotta do that again and I guess that's like a performance high which doesn't have to come from fighting come come from stage being on stage from uh, anything really from painting um so there was this pull and i couldn't ignore it uh i was just like even if i was injured or sick i couldn't stop it was really powerfully um pulling me and it's it served its purpose i am very grateful for that time so then, so then what was like the catalyst for stepping away from from that was it like 
you know, I'm curious, did you, did you begin teaching there or, or was there something else that made you kind of be like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm ready for a different route? Um, it, it actually happened, uh, shortly after I met, uh, my first movement teacher, Ido Portal. Um, I was working at a gym and not very, like, stimulated by that, and I was fighting, uh, and the fighting was going really well. I had finally gotten to the level that I wanted to enter, so I was not prepared, or so I thought, to stop. I started getting invitations to fight champions in other countries, like, oh, the British champion and the Japanese champion, and then... Um, and I was like, oh, this is amazing. Like, you know, very scary, but, but really where I wanted to be. Um, but I had met um, Ido Portal. I did like One Movement X, uh, like intro workshop that he taught in Hong Kong at the time where I was living. And I was like, oh, I, this is exactly what I was like looking for or hoping to get. Like, I know I want to work with the body, but the fitness industry, like, after less than two years, I was like, There's, this is not the right thing for me. I do wanna work um, physically, but I don't know where to like find what I'm looking for. And I was happy to like separate my own hobby of fighting and what I was teaching. Like I would have liked to teach if I had fighters, but fighters are really a minority of the population and they also tend to have no money. So that's why they all have other jobs. So it, it wasn't really um, the path for me to, to go that way, or I didn't have the pull to like have the patience to build towards that. So when I met Ido, um, I just felt that pull again. I was like, I have to get involved with this and I don't really know how this person is you know big and famous and lives in another continent and um, they're kind of hard to approach but I still I did approach him and things just aligned the way they they needed to again like I saw him in a salad bar which I was going to regularly and um, I was very shy but I was like oh I have nothing to lose I just have to go and talk to him and we spoke and he actually gave me a chance to like train with their team and see how I went. And um, it was just a huge blessing. So I took that on and I was very grateful. And I trained with um, my teacher at the time, Odelia, who's the most amazing teacher. <laughs> and I progressed very quickly. Like um, there's on YouTube, my three month video, like now looking back, especially now that I've been teaching for many years, I'm like, that was really quick progress actually. Like I did train for many hours every day, but there was, like I say, it was just, I feel meant to be. Um, and when I did that training, like I had to again, prove myself to this new uh, family, like a new kid on the block or like, you know, do we accept her or not? So uh as you and and many movement practitioners who have worked with Ido know it's very demanding of time energy resources to to train the Ido portal method and I realized I could not sustain fighting and doing that 
at the same time. And I tried. So my retirement fight I did in like unofficial retirement fight I did in Japan um, was amazing. I got a draw. I fought the local champion Little Tiger at the time. <laughs> um, like I, I did both trainings, but I was going to bed shaking with fever and not recovering. And it was just like the, the people at that level, they're training six hours a day. And Ido Portal method is also training six hours a day. So I tried to, to do both. And I was like, I just can't, um, I'm going to have to choose. And I, I chose to drop the fighting, even though I had just entered where I, like for me, it was the start of that, you know, yeah. world. Um, so so it, it, when did you start teaching then? Was it, was it that, at that time when you were, when you began practicing movement? Yeah, like I, I already had quite a few students and I was teaching um, Thai boxing and like fitness exercise. So the same students were amazing. They just stuck with me no matter what I taught. So as soon as I met Ido, um, you know, him and Odelia said, like, you should, you know, teach this stuff. So there was just this organic transition where a normal push-up turned into a protracted push-up or a scapular, like, uh, you know, um, scapular push-up or, or things like that, or like a, the style of chin-up changed and um, people started learning handstands and it was starting to become trendy. So it wasn't that difficult either. Like if you're going against a trend, that's hard. Um, but if you're going with a growing trend, like the alignment of the timing was just, another blessing um it was new so some people rejected it mm -hmm. but most of them really loved it they were like wow what is this this is like amazing and i had a very good relationship with with all the students um some of them are still with me now and it's been yeah like eight years um like did you oh, sorry did you did you um uh because you talked about like how you found this like spiritual aspect in like fighting or the spiritual experience in fighting, especially like in competition. Yeah. Was that something that you found in movement as well? Or did it, or did it, did it, did you find it somewhere else as you kind of continued on your, your path? Um, I would say that on a, general level that decreased a lot um some things were definitely there like like you see something that looks you know amazing and impossible and then you have that belief that you will do it and as you put in the hard work you do achieve it so you are kind of achieving miracles in a way um so there was yeah like empowerment um there was a different type of journey i i became very good at mimicking i suppose which was different like we had it in martial arts too of course you learn the technique you mimic it and then you you make it your own um and this was like i guess mimicry on a higher level because the things were complex and like very complex and demanding um 
and moments of like, you know, relaxed concentration during handstands, for example, they would be there. But I would say that for my own personal journey, um, I actually developed a lot more ego and, uh, and became very obsessed with the body, with how it, you know, was I like lean and strong and in optimal condition. And I, I ate really strict, which like, you know, most athletes, unless they're preparing for competition, they're just like ordinary people. Um, so I became more educated on food, but I developed, I'd say, like a not healthy relationship with food. Um, I became obsessed with my body and obsessed with like chasing, accumulating and retaining skills. Um, so I totally I, to I totally relate to, to everything you just said. Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. There's there's a lot of like a lot of attachment that I I went through. And also a lot of like, uh, and also attachment to like skill kind of collecting or technique collecting. Yeah. And and then maybe even a, like I would almost consider it like maybe a, a kind of like attachment to like the mimicry as well, something like that, um, to being able to do it the way that I saw it, as opposed to like what I later discovered was the, or, or, and where I feel like I spend a lot of time now is being like, well, what is it like to kind of find that collaboration of like, like the technical and the spiritual or, or the classical and the romantic, whatever it is, like, how do, how do, how do we let these things kind of begin to like intertwine? Yes. You know? But yeah, yes. I feel, I feel what you, exactly what you were describing. Yeah. Um, and like, it's not, I'm not sharing this in, in as a kind of critique or judgment, but just as one of the many stepping stones I needed on my journey, it had to be a part of it. Like, unless we experience and transcend those things that are lying within us that need to be dealt with, we don't like overcome them or grow beyond them. We don't transcend them. So um, that was the part of my journey, I suppose that that was missing and I needed to like dive in and I, I tend to dive into things, not so much dabble or um, like, I mean, obviously I will dabble too. Like maybe I'll go once a month bouldering with friends or like try a musical instrument and, and it's not like my hobby or something, but usually it's been quite like immersive when I've done something and that was what I needed. I think I needed to develop very strong attachment to then be able to see it for what it was and then sever those attachments. So it had nothing to do with the skills or the body, but my internal workings of that. So what were kind of then like the I don't know, the, like having that kind of obs realization or these, or, or even subtly making these observations, what were, what were kind of like the next steps? What were like, oh, well, maybe I don't, maybe collecting is like not how I want to operate. Like what, what were, what were kind of like the next twists and turns? Um, I, 
I changed as I kind of hit 30. Um, like it, it just happened. Um, I suddenly felt very unmotivated and disinterested. And I was still training and still making gains. And I was training less and less, but getting stronger. And I was like, this is amazing. And in the beginning, I was like, that's awesome. Like, I'm just like really powerful and physically awesome. And I'm doing even less. And then after a while, I was like, I'm getting more skills and more strength. And I'm very unfulfilled like it it's meaningless it it had complete like all the magic that was there had gone and I was um you know I had lots of expectations of my performance um and there was more negative self-talk but I I stopped actually caring so I guess it's maybe like in more uh you know, plain terms that, that, you know, the masses may use would be like, maybe I had a dream to become really, really rich and have a lot of money. And I worked really hard and had like a good business mentor. And I went and I, and I got rich and then I had to work less and more money was coming in. But after a while, it's like, well, okay. So I have even more money and I am miserable. That was the, I felt unhappy. Um, and uh, and I also saw limitations. So I would see like teenage girls or even middle-aged men, like any random non-movement person, they would like uh, hear a song they liked and be completely free and expressive with that. And I'd look at them and I'd realize, I was like, oh, I'm a movement teacher. I'm helping people to be more free and strong and and powerful and creative, but I can't do what they're doing. I'm too embarrassed. Um, you know, I'll only do what I know I can do really well and is going to be uh, culturally glorified and aesthetically pleasing. I don't move from my heart or in a state of trance like I did when I was fighting. I only knew how to like, like if I were to be an artist, I became the best tracer in the world. But if you you put me next to a four-year-old and they just throw paint on, <laughs> I'd be like, oh, well, mine's gonna be too ugly to see, I won't do it. Um, so I felt really empty and unfulfilled and that everything I was like, everything I have done is meaningless. Like, what am I doing? Just getting strong and ripped all day and like having these nice coordinations, but, I'm an unhappy human being. And then I started to get um, different injuries and, and I just didn't want to train. So I, I, I had the identity crisis. I'm, like, well, I'm just a lazy person now. Oh my God. Um, and I tried my best to keep that energy while I was teaching, but people, they don't feel your words. They feel your presence, your tone, your body language. And I started to lose uh, all my students as well. So everything was like falling apart. And I decided that um, I will need to start from ground zero and it's going to hurt a lot. But if I can be that three-year-old that happily puts their messy splotch of paint on the paper and is 
happy to show like the parents that I'd rather do that than be this like, you know, stunning tracer. Um, and it was very vulnerable to see, like, because the dialogue was so negative that whatever I made, I, I labeled as ugly and, and not good enough. But I was like, but I'm just going to keep doing this. And that's been my focus for the last, like, three or four years. Um, and now it's, like, different. Well, I know that, you know, uh, people who listen to this aren't going to know that you and I chatted for a little bit before this. Um, and, and, and that I had said that you know, part of the reason I reached out with, to you is because someone who we're mutually friends with had said like, oh, like, I think you guys told me like, oh, I think you guys have like similar stories. And again, like, as you tell your story, I feel like you're just kind of like repeating the things that I would like say out loud. It's so funny. It sounds to me though, like almost like the, 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 the beginning steps of like, kind of like the rebuilding is, totally. and, and after hearing you talk before, is is kind of like going to this place of like these more abstract terms as opposed to the things that were were super tangible and I'm I'm guessing but because because you had mentioned things like joy and happy and 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 things like that before that it's almost like kind of returning to a foundation of playfulness is yeah. is maybe the like the next step is that is that where you're kind of leading to definitely definitely um and and like you said, it is that kind of first step, which shows that there's always first steps because I had them with the martial arts. I had them with the initial movement training and all of them are extreme, are crucial first steps that expand into this other world and, and bring you on this like hero's journey, right? Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, it was the first step and it was, it was brutal um, more than any of the other first steps because I didn't have this like mentor or coach or peers. Um, and I was starting with failure and no direction. Um, and, but I just knew I had to trust that I had to walk that road because the alternative, I had done the alternative and, and I was not going to stay there. Um, and it's been, it, it's a, such a wonderful, amazing journey. It's like bringing me back to that childlike state. Um, and what's happening now uh, is it's transformed my teaching completely. So I'm like, well, I was really like hurting and missing direction and miss like missing um something crucial in my life and this was like uh, creativity freedom uh problem solving without like you know it's like uh Josef Ruchek in Fighting Monkey uh who's who's one of my teachers now um he, he'll say like you know what what do you do when you don't know what to do so problem solving in a way that that determines whether you survive or not, or whether that experience is optimized, you know, based on your decision or not. Um, sometimes, so it, like, oh, sorry. Sometimes, it, like what you're describing, makes me think of this uh, kind of this like story I tell of like how you you kind of see someone's like true self like in a moment when they're falling, 
right? And like yeah. when you say Yosef says like, like what do you do when you don't have like uh, what did you say? Um, when, what do you do when you don't know what to do? Yeah, what do you do when you don't know what to do? And like yeah, so it's like if you're if you're falling in a moment, you really see who someone is in that moment, right? You see like like how much of like the intelligence has been fed in that in a in that moment of a fall. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in that moment, while it is threatening um, and unpleasant, that moment holds the key to endless possibilities, which yeah. is that childlike state, right? So like the child with the paint on the paper does, has not decided if they're young enough, I'm going to do a cat in a house. It's, it's endless, the possibilities. Maybe they don't make much to, to our eyes, um, but they could be painting like the whole galaxy and we don't know it. Right. Um, because so, they're, because they're running around, not collecting knowledge, right? Yeah. They're, they're running around feeding their intelligence. I always say intelligence and maybe it's a different word that would make, that would be a better word. But like, to me, like knowledge is this thing that's closer to the surface that we often like have words for. And intelligence yeah. is that deeper thing that we yeah. can't always like put words to. And like, they don't care about knowledge. They're not running around being like, oh, like remembering all the trivial things and memorizing things like children are just running around and feeding that like deeper thing. Maybe it's closer to like intuition, right? Yeah. And yeah. it's through things like, like play or something. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so like with this journey, it's been like, I had to be there um, to have this like brutal primal inner struggle to then see like, actually the world is a really beautiful place. And yeah, there are threats and there is suffering and ignorance, but it's also like this amazing manifestation. And, and in this world, a bit like in a video game or more than a video game, I can like create freely. Um, I don't have to stick with those self-imposed things that limit me. And like, how do I do that? How do I start practicing that? And I start like with the tiniest steps um, and and seeing or, or seeing like where I can uh, transfer uh, the knowledge that had become experience in one area into another. I mean, that's what I presented on the embodiment conference. Like I, you know, I spoke about when I had this identity crisis, I was like, so how do I like become creative? Like, where's the starting point? Um, and I, I knew there were other areas in my life where I was creative and uh, a major one was cooking. So I was like, well, okay, what are the principles? And and feeling I use in cooking. Cause I had done that as much as I had trained for the last like 15 years or so, or, or 17 years. Um, so I, I start to transfer the principles that had were, uh, you know, not theoretical, they were embodied into the training, um, you know, which is like, okay, here are the ingredients. So here's the environment. Maybe I don't train inside a movement facility, I go, in, in Australia, they call it bush. It means forest or like, you know, entering like nature um, and see like, well, the weather is meaning this or summertime there's snakes, so I cannot go in that area. And and seeing from there, like, what do I do? What do I do when I don't know what to do? And, and start to 
like clamor around. What if I was five? What, how would I play? Why can I not play now? Um, oh, my partner has joined me for a walk. Let me like um, get the practice ball, like ball and string out. Or, or let's see what if we play tag or what if we like try to climb up that tree and, and starting from there. So it's like you have the ingredients in front of you and then that's what you make and they relate to the seasons and to the environment and to your state like if i'm if i just taught like six classes i'm not going to go to a strength session after maybe i just do a little bit of like tai chi stuff or roll around on the floor um so using more what was in front of me um and then that journey has brought me now to like thinking less about myself and how do I open that space for others to do that for themselves in um, and not everyone wants that some people they it, it's scary it's extremely vulnerable like I said it was very painful in the beginning for me and terrifying um, but a lot of people are also missing and craving that so holding space like where I'm not telling the students what to do and how to do it and demonstrating this is the way and now you do it like step by step but opening like a scenario like um uh the way uh did you watch kung fu panda uh yeah that was a while back when did it come out oh yeah quite a while yeah but i did see it yeah i definitely saw it them are amazing yeah um you can just see the first one and this also uh joseph ruchek from fighting monkey recommended Mm -hmm. if you watch it now as a movement teacher it will make have completely different meaning okay Uh, um it's incredible like ancient wisdom is in that cartoon um so i highly recommend and and i i tell my students to like well, I suggest to them, I was like, if you like cartoons, you should really see Kung Fu Panda. It will tell you a lot. Um, but basically, like, how do I make a scenario where the student has to know what to do when they don't know what to do? And it could be like play and creativity, or it could be solving a coordination. So in Kung Fu Panda, even for people who haven't watched it, there's like the, the old master and then the, the disciple, he's the one right? The hero, but he's this like clumsy, fat, lazy, um, gluttonous panda. And, and, but the, the master has to train the panda and make him into the best warrior that he's ever made. And he's like, how on earth do I, he's, he's a disgusting panda. I don't want to train him. Um, but he realizes that he loves dumplings. So then he uses the dumplings to get the panda will always find a way to get to the dumpling. (laughs) because it's very important for him to get the dumpling and suddenly he's like on the roof doing the splits eating the dumpling and the the master is like oh my god and he's like i have nothing to teach you i just have to understand you and then create the environment for you to train yourself (laughs) oh that's so great i can't wait to watch this again and you have me thinking (laughs) you have me thinking about so many things you have me thinking about some stuff that i was writing earlier for for a class description and I was writing things like, um, there, no, there are no instructions. There are just suggestions. Um, that uh, I'm trying to think of one of the other things. That uh, there are are not so many answers. There are more questions, right? That it's a little broader, like a little bit like you know, 
utilizing tools like imagination as opposed to just everything being like, I don't want to go so far as to say protocol, but like, as, as, as always, as opposed to there just being like this, then this, then that it being a little more like, Hey, like we're going to explore something together in almost like facilitating exploration. Yes. Yes. Sounds like what you're describing. Yeah, totally. Um, and then the, the, you know, the more protocol based stuff, like it's not to say it's not valuable because it is amazing. Like all these collective knowledge over time had to come together to develop it. Um, but I see it a bit like what Pilates was and is now, like people now poo poo on Pilates or they are a diehard Pilates person and think that they can cure everything in the body from doing it. Of course, it's not so like such a blanket statement, but that's like a generalization of the two schools. But originally it was designed for to supplement in a tiny, tiny fraction of the training for dancers outside of dance so that they could dance right maybe like build connectivity or awareness or whatever um i'm not a pilates person at all but like it i i understand i did a tiny bit of it and have some friends that that like it um that it's a a little supplement kind of like you have your your nutrition and then you take once in a while a vitamin c maybe you would need um or or herbs like ayurvedic herbs even or even, or, or even like fitness, like, a, you know, like strength and conditioning, for instance, like from my understanding was like yeah. never meant to be the central piece. It was mostly yeah. like the supplementation for athletics or sport. Absolutely. Yeah. So that would be like maybe you can use gymnastic rings for rehab or um, that athlete, like that's the edge that they're missing. So you sprinkle it in. Um, or, or like the mobility work, um, you know, okay, that specific area they're deficient in, let's supplement with this herb. Um, not this is your potato and meat and vegetables. Um, that would be the more the open scenario where they are resolving their own problems, uh, discovering how they like to express, becoming creative and and masters in problem solving and imaginative and communicating with each other to create something bigger. Um, And then sometimes maybe, yeah, they are missing some, like they're amazing dancer, but their legs are extremely weak. Yeah, go lift some weights, go go do that stuff. It's amazing stuff. But but I just see that the the proportion, the ratio has kind of it in my value system is not agreeing. So that's why I train, I teach differently, but each has its place and its value. And, um, and it just has to resonate with the teacher itself because maybe you can be a specialist, um, like just an Olympic weightlifter. And maybe you need 30 years to develop that skill. Like I've been to visit masters like of Chinese Olympic lifting team. And when they show something like a specialization, you see the whole movement world is in there. The way they they float, they explode, they jump, they lift the arms. It looks like a dance. Um, you know, I'm sure if you go to any master specialist, that although there's limitations, there's there is a mastery because 
what makes mastery are the principles that become embodied. So um, again, referring to, to Fighting Monkey, who is like my main movement inspiration in the last few years, um, you'll see people who maybe they're really great circus person or a really, really great rugby player, they pick up the coordinations. Um, and, and because somehow they have that principle, right? They can coordinate the, the limbs and the, their spatial awareness and relate it to the principle that they had. So um, it's not to say like, you know, linear stuff is not good, specialization is not good, all of it is good, but it's how it's treated. Does it expand your world or does it limit it? Right. And I also, th I, I, I kind of hear you, like I feel like I have, but because I realize when we, when people say generalist, um, there's, it almost is, it almost appears there's like a lot of uh, schools and definitions of like what it means to be a generalist. So it's kind of like you're being like, well, I'm, I'm kind of redefining or here's my approach to like what a generalist is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, that's taken on, you know, you ask a lot of different people and they might have a lot of different ideas of what that means. Um, but, yeah, I, but, totally. I'm, I, but, but like I said, yours, it seems to kind of be like, well, there's like, there's a little bit of the defined and then there's a little bit of the undefined and we kind of sprinkle those things together. And there's a place where like, maybe around there is like what a generalist is. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's just like cooking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's like sometimes there's exact measurements and then sometimes you're just like sprinkling something in. Yeah, that and and that's that's totally true. And if I think about like how I like to cook, I'm not a baker. I hate measuring and following <laughs> instructions. Mm -hmm. I I I I mean I I have a sweet tooth and I love eating baked goods, but I do not like baking. I like improvising on and tweaking and I see recipes as suggestions, not instructions. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about improvising a little bit? I'm curious uh, if you have any thoughts on it. I recently re finished reading a book that I thought was really valuable called Free Play. Um, uh, if you haven't checked it out, it's a, it's a short little book worth reading. Um, yeah. But even just acknowledging that like improvisation is like what we're doing moment to moment every single day. Um, and it's not quite as foreign to us as, as we may think because it's happening in every moment. Um, but I'm curious about your, your approach to, to integrating that in when it comes to like play and creativity and things like that. Um, like you said, that's something that, uh, especially in recent months and years for me, I've been thinking about more on a daily throughout the day basis um and not just okay so when i do my movement practice i improvise and then i go back to a real normal life so per se and i just you know brush my teeth uh, i don't drive but like go to work um you know do all the like tick the boxes so it would come in in 
each moment um, as much as is possible. Of course, sometimes like the mind will dwell on past and future or, or have to do things as they need to be done. And, and that's part of being human. Um, but even like in washing dishes, I just think like, I try to connect with like really the feeling and texture of everything and, and maybe wash with my left hand or uh, like look at the patterns of the soap. So kind of have like almost daydream into that, like being present with that um, or cleaning the floor, like another one, right? Like how do you view the, the dirt that's on the floor and how do you like move it? And, and how do you want to arrange the space? Like this is stuff I'll, I'll think about. Um, you know, how am I walking to, to work? Um, you know, what's, am I watching my mind? Am I watching the environment and listening here? We're so lucky. I guess Boulder is very beautiful too. Like we have tons of tropical birds and, and animals here. Um, and, and like just behind the house as if when I take the dog for a walk, usually we'll see kangaroos and stuff. So it's also easier to like notice these things. Um, and then in the movement practice itself, like, like we're saying, there's a mix of, you know, some things are like have to be technical and structured. It's not just like timer goes off for 90 minutes and it's just like a structureless dance party. Um, there's like themes and, and focuses and directions. Um, but I'll try to have things where, uh, for myself and I, I very often join my own classes as a participant. So I'll pair with the students and ask them for suggestions and they come up with games too. Like, I don't want it to be just Soishi's class and Soishi is the leader. Like I am, and I hold space for all of that to happen. But like, that's boring and limited if 100% of everything comes from me and they are trying maybe to even be like me. They're like, oh, but you do that really well and I, I can't be like you. And I'm like, God, please don't be like me. Like, mm -hmm. you know, you will be much more interesting and, and you may do it quite possibly better than I am, you know, if you can call it, if you have a hierarchy. Uh, but I'll, I'll ask them, like, I'm like, okay, let's play this game with a stick and, and like pin it between our shoulders or between our hands. And then I'll ask them, I'm like, hey, you're, um, you're a banker and you have a maths degree. Can you make this into a mathematical game? And then they will like go together and do that. Um, and then someone else will be an engineer or, or they'll, be, they'll make a request like little kids, like, oh, can we please try that? That would be really, really wild. And I'll kind of think about it. I'm like, yeah, it, it could work. Let's just try. And I'm like, are people game for trying? And they're like, yeah. And then we just get into this like thing. And if it's a crap game, I'm like, okay, that was fun, but I don't see it evolving anywhere. Maybe we won't do this again. Or other times like a whole new thing gets created. Um, so there's like a co-creating happening and, um, I'll also do some drills, like a recent one I had, um, which is with the fighting monkey practice ball. So the string with the tennis ball at the end is I'll just have a partner hold it and not move it at all. And I'll give a scenario to the students. We just did this yesterday and, um, 
it's gorgeous to watch. Like if there's even numbers, I don't join and I just observe them and I'll do like the DJ thing. I'm like, oh, let me make this mood for them now. And, <laughs> um, and they just get really into it. And um, I'll say like, okay, so you don't have any much stimulus from the partner. You have a partner and you have the ball, but they're not gonna move it or give you anything. Um, they're just there. And you are an alien from outer space that has just landed and discovered this thing. So how are you going to interact with it? What, how will you like, you know, you can go anywhere in the room, you can go what, wherever you like, do whatever you want, but you are not you, like, um, <laughs> you're not Kyle, you're this alien that has seen this thing. It could be dangerous, it could be edible. And then they, like some of them, you know, the dancers are just like, oh yeah. And then maybe the office workers like, uh, so how do I do this? I'm like, you can even just sit and stare at it. That's, 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 a, that's an option. Mm -hmm. And you see it transform and then they become these like, giggling children you know after a few rounds of the same thing um and that draws out like you have to improvise and be creative and mm -hmm. drop like your planning and linear thinking it's almost like um I, I feel like i said this recently but it's like when when you give people permission to be playful what you're really doing is giving people permission to take risks right mm -hmm. And that's like a really powerful thing because when people feel like they can take risks, they're like, they're really open to failure. You know, when something almost feels rigid in certain ways or very technical in certain ways, it's almost like there's not as, for me, maybe it's me personally, but there's not as much of that like willingness to like take a risk, you know, yeah. but, but risk is important because like when you take a risk, that's where you're, you're, you're potentially going to find a surprise right? Absolutely. And surprise is so powerful, right? Like that's real, like, that's like the magical learning. I almost feel like, right. Yeah. Like that's when yeah. you've like, you've injected something that you couldn't be taught. Yes, totally, totally. Um, and, and I always keep coming back to this childlike thing because first we can all relate because we have been children at some point and some kids maybe at four, they start to become little adults, but that's not the majority um but like how open and fun was the world like even sweeping was a game it wasn't a chore and um you know like let's say if i'm teaching like a handstand class and there's intermediate students who are freestanding you know with no wall and doing like cool things um i'll look at them and most of them look i'd say not joyful um, so I can't label what they're feeling, but they're, uh, of course, they're concentrating and they're there because they want to be, but there's a lot of huffing, sighing, puffing, silent swearing, and uh, that was not good enough is the general vibe. And then you see the first, the beginner who's doing their first handstand class ever. And if they're not one who is like extremely fearful, there's this like, whoa oh my god that was like amazing can i try to kick up for one second and like yeah go and you're like oh like that's like magic i just can't you know and then i can see the others and they can stay there like whoa and like i'll look at the experienced ones and they're like ah oh, that was so shit my line needs more work and i i fell out three seconds earlier than i had to 
And I'm like, do you remember your first class or the first time you got like that magic feeling? I'm like, how come the more success you have, the, le the more that goes away? Like, why can't every, I mean, not every session you're gonna be like, whoa, but, but like that, you know, the, the planning, the goals, the structure have replaced almost everything else. And there's just this like obsession with like perfecting it. And, and the failures are like uh, almost like a personal um, tally that goes down, like almost like the self value goes down in a way. Like I fell out of this thing or I didn't get my five chin-ups. I only got four and last week I did five. And um and it's like such a big deal. Um, like failure is to be avoided, you know, and, and there's like a blame, like I'm not training hard enough, I'm not good enough, or I'm not enough is kind of like something that's there. And it's not there with every practitioner. Some are just like, you know, always cheerful and enjoying, but I just see this a lot. And, mm. and I think that it, I know that it doesn't have to be that way. Right. I, you know, it makes me think of, uh, so I, you know, I, I was doing jujitsu and I'd been doing it for three years up until the beginning of COVID and I was training at Marcelo's in the city. And then Marcelo has this guy, Paul Schreiner, who works at Marcelo's, who's, you know, someone who's been around a really long time. And he, I interviewed him for the podcast and we were talking about jujitsu and I forget how it came up and we were talking about training and practicing. And he just said something about how we should be in jujitsu approaching it in a more playful way or something like that. And it's an interesting example because people would think of jujitsu and they would think of it being this like rough, uncomfortable, frustrating thing. And it's like, it can actually be all of those things and be playful at the same time because you're, you're, you're willing to fail or you're okay failing, or you're, you're willing to take the risks or you're, it, it doesn't need to be perfect every time. You know what I mean? And that's kind of that attitude. And it's like, you know, I mean, maybe that's what it, you're, you're, you're talking about a little bit. And, and it's, I can see how it's difficult maybe as a teacher to like communicate that to people like in a handstand practice when they've been working on it for like a few years and they're like yeah. beating themselves up over small things. So I'm curious, like, do you have like an approach to like trying to give them that freedom back or that like that, that, that playfulness back, despite being at like a higher level on the peak? Um, I mean, I feel like as a teacher, all I can do is lay down food on the table and people will eat what they want to eat, but I will use maybe humor um, or examples or get them even to like reflect or take a break. Um, or use visualization. I'm like, well, why don't you imagine a really, really beautiful line? Like everything starts from the imagination, right? Like you don't go through university without imagining that it's possible that you will even start um, or you don't get married or get a job or get anything without it starting first in the imagination. So I'm like, why don't you imagine a really beautiful line and not just imagine the beautiful line but yourself feeling good in it so it's not enough that the technique is good but how you feel with it because maybe something looks amazing 
but inside you're you're not feeling amazing um and then like you know maybe even put away the timer and see if you can match that feeling and like you know and take a break if not um so it's like a softer approach which is a huge change because like I'm sure if any original old students listen to this, they'll be like, oh, she, she like, they would, you know, call me like a really hard, abusive taskmaster, um, because that's how I kind of trained. And I start when I started teaching, it was that way. Um, a bit like uh, the, the, and I, I, you can tell I like movies too. Um, I don't know if you saw Whiplash, the drumming. Yeah. Oh yeah, you, you were like, you were like, the, <laughs> you were like the teacher. Yeah. I mean, I, I am pretty certain I was not that way, but <laughs> that was a movie that students were like, you have to watch that so you can understand how we feel, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, co I, 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 again, like I, I, I totally relate. I feel like um, there was a time where it's like, I felt very, and I don't want to say militant, but I do feel like it was like, it needs to be a certain way. And then all of a sudden, maybe there's this moment of being like, oh no, like, everything is actually perfect. Everything mm. is perfect. Like what mm -hmm. like, I feel, I find myself saying that to people in class a lot of time, like whatever you do today is actually totally perfect because yeah. it's where you're, it's where you're at right now. And, yeah. and right now is perfect. Exactly. Exactly. And, and, and as you have like experience as a teacher, you know, when to push more, when someone's like, you know, miles away and you're like, you know, you're, you're here, but they're mentally like, really far from that and you give them that little like just leap you're there trust me mm -hmm. um you know or you have more energy and power than you think but yeah like it's it's just different it's holding space um for for people to develop themselves in i'm curious um because I, like i said i read your 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 bio before we chatted and you talk about like observing patterns yeah. and and that the patterns kind of exist everywhere can you can you talk a little bit about your your use of that and and and, and what that term means a little bit at least where you're coming from with it uh yeah definitely um like we perceive the world through our senses and and kind of process that in our minds and we read everything more or less as a pattern whether it's external so we there's like different rhythms and habits so maybe we have a pattern of the work week um, or of what's happening in the household and of our physical training and then we also have patterns that are not just like external in the environment or like expressed only through the body but uh, mental patterns and emotional patterns so if we like want to develop um like to keep transforming into like these like moving towards a higher self and not just stay on a base uh, level which is conditioned by patterns like let's say an animal will be more um, 
habitual based on their nature, like the, the dog that, that lives here with us, we more or less know what behavior he will have when, and we try to guess what it means, but it's quite like he's just living his duty as a dog, right? He will bark when this happens, he'll behave like that when there's food, and the pattern is very predictable. And we have this too. So um, I, for me, it's very important as a human being, we have this ability to kind of step outside of ourselves and watch ourselves and our habitual patterns in our daily life. So it'll be in the training, you know, what kind of self-talk do we have while we're training? How is our problem solving? But in life, like what is our pattern with our relationships? Like, do I have a pattern with my partner that um, is an old pattern that I have that has not been worked through that is not serving me or us? Do I have that with my boss? Um, you know, and it's being able to like observe and and work towards transcending the limiting ones and cultivating ones that bring more growth, more abundance, um, more freedom and connection. So uh, I think I gave an example in another um, conversation I did like publicly um like how we will tend to project outside and we will uh kind of impose our own limitations and labels and blame onto others so we would do that again to the, the people often that we're close to whether it's the spouse or the parent or the child or the boss or the employee or the neighbor um but like uh like here in australia um, which is so far from the state, but of course the whole world is interconnected and everyone affects each other. People were going like obsessed about the presidential elections um, in the States. And for me, I'm pretty disconnected from politics. I'm almost like a hermit on an island, but luckily I'm with people and they inform me. So I'm not <laughs> so alienated. And it was kind of like amusing to watch them get like stressed and panicked and emotionally involved about like who's gonna win and what's gonna happen. And if they would like throw a party or like throw a tantrum, and I was like, this is so interesting. They're like talking about these two human beings that they actually know nothing about living in another part of the planet and having weeks of anxiety and gossip uh, over it and actually now that it's kind of like of course it will not settle for a little while because it's really dynamic whatever's happening um, but no one's talking about it like all that build up and like anxiety and and drama that was like expanding is just gone now they're like complaining about Christmas uh, uh, duties and other things and it's like looking at something like that i'm like the mind wants to project onto what is wrong in something that is so distant rather than reflect on like well what if i have these very same limiting patterns in fact they're created from myself um you know like we always want to go outside so can we observe what's going on inside and work on that because that's the only thing you can work on you can't go outside 
and change someone else or change an entire situation, especially when it's so distant from you. But can I become a better human being, a more honest one or a more selfless one and do my little humble part to make this a better place? Or do I just sit and point at something really distant and, and like add to more hostility in the whole situation? I don't know if I sidetracked too much no. with this one. <laughs> no, no, no. It, I mean, it's it's kind of like, uh, you know, I feel like I was just reading recently, maybe it's like the Upanishads or something. I don't know if you've ever uh -huh. read it, but it was something maybe about like in, you know, whoever translated it wrote, wrote like at the beginning of each Upanishad, like something kind of describing what was yeah. happening. And maybe it was in there, it was almost saying that like, you know, these people, whoever they were, these sages or whatever, like yeah. they were doing the same kind of research that like the scientists we see today do research, but the scientists today are doing like this external research, right? And yeah. these people were doing the same research, but it was like internal. Yeah. And um, I don't know, I, as you were kind of getting to where you were going about kind of an internal versus external, it got me thinking about that a little bit and, and, and reflecting on like, any of like that suffering or things that we feel comes from like within ourselves and like yeah. we can address that because it's like it's not actually happening on the outside right it's yeah. it's something within us that we can um recalibrate or we can like redefine it or we can we can do what we want with that or it can be what it is as long and but it, we can also just know that it can be fleeting as well yeah yeah like imagine if uh you know, we could reprogram ourselves to only experience compassion and joy and love um, and, and freedom, then how would that outside stuff affect you? And how would you affect the outside stuff? It's actually a lot more powerful, um, you know, if, if, like, if that was to be, like, your and my experience, how would that affect the people we're close to if that's all that we were to feel? Mm -hmm. um, and how would that grow outwards? Yeah, it, it, it's like, uh, um, I don't know, I've read a couple things, but I, I also interviewed someone for, the, for this talk uh, or for the podcast, and he's a writer, or he's done a lot, but he wrote a book uh, called Die Wise, and he... Uh, was critical of of the idea of like creative expression because he was saying creative expression is a very individual thing. And perhaps we should consider approaching things less as individuals and more as citizens. So if we were thinking of like creativity or artistry, like if we approach it as, as a citizen versus an individual, what does that begin to look like? And when you say things like compassion and love, it's almost like, well, if we start approaching things a little bit more from that compassionate place or from that citizen type place, what is what do things start to look like? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think like this year has been, you know, for, for most of the world, pretty turbulent with challenges and for a lot of the world also with a lot of blessings and, and opportunities and like things, the way they have been going are not like functional or 
conducive to most of humanity. Very, very few human beings really benefit from the systems that we have right now, whether they're political, economic, social. Um, so they have to kind of break down. And like, for me, what's being made clear is like, the inner work is crucial because that's the only one you ha really have control of your mm. inner state your how you practice internally so whether there's a lockdown or not whether you have a job or not whether you like that's the only thing you have control of you can't run outside and personally even talk with a politician or negotiate with the virus itself that's all out, out of way out of your uh, control but the other side is the the crucial importance of community uh, that like it's showing us that that we need that um, that like you're saying maybe the artist should do like a collective work in service of of like others so we all need like you know, to share the resources and the knowledge and the, the, the friendship, like that's kind of, you know, we, we can't keep living with neighbors that we don't know their name and um, not knowing where our food comes from and having like banks we can't trust and just complaining about what we see on telly. Like we actually need um, like to, to come together and not in like a national scale, but like 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 what you guys have there or what we're also developing here in our movement communities. It's our little like humble step and contribution and, and, and involvement where we also benefit a lot. Um, like here people, I don't know if it was like that in, in Boulder, but there was no toilet paper, there was no rice, there was like the supermarkets were just empty. People became uh, basic animal like had basic animalistic tendencies where there's scarcity in the mind because there was plenty of rice and toilet paper um, for everyone but internally there's a scarcity so they hoard and and like the neighbor is a threat not a friend um, and we had like among our little groups like helping each other well how about we all share all of these resources and like you go here, I'll go there. And then we share with everyone. Um, and like in Canberra, especially where I live, a lot of people are fortunate enough to have gardens and a lot of them grow their own food too. Like not self-sustained, they still go and buy groceries, but a lot of fruits and veggies and sometimes eggs, they're, they're grown here. Um, so it's like returning, uh, like strengthening those relationships with the land and with each other more as like a little tribe rather than a large nation. I mean, the idea of nation is, is just a few hundred years old. It's constructed and um, yeah, like all of this is being kind of shown to us. Yeah, it's like um, the idea of winning and losing, right? Or being winners or losers can't sustain. Right. Like there can't just like, like that, that idea of like existing in that way in like a, I guess, call everyone it like is a, a loser. Right. Everyone loses when there's winners everyone and losers. Loses. Because right. everyone has a scarce mentality. So if you win, you risk losing. And if you lose, you're losing. And, and everyone is your enemy rather than your friend. Mm -hmm. 
Right. And that's, uh, you know, as, as things get bigger and more connected and, and the stakes get higher, that's like a, a dangerous direction to be headed in. Yeah. Yeah. Especially when, when, or like resources are centralized and, um, the more there's separation, the more there will be like fear and violence and, um, and I guess that, yeah, you guys in the States would experience it at another level on a much more daily basis, right? There's everyone is having their own identity. No one can say anyone else's name without creating more hostility and hurt. And like, it's just separation, separation, separation. Mm -hmm. And that will have to continue until it collapses and something else can be born of it. Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, here it's a little bit sensitive, but not as obsessive with the political correctness and um, like there's stuff here too, but not at the same level. Um, and, and I think that comes up because the separations just keep increasing. Yeah. Well, that's, a, it kind of brings me back. I know that like right before we started chatting, I was saying about how I was talking to a friend of mine and was saying that like, you know, the things that we could would love to see talked about more in movement and it's uh you know whether it's teaching or practicing like the changes that we would like to see can, in the world can be reflected in the teaching or the practice or whatever and it kind of now is like coming almost full circle to that right so it's like you know if you want the world to be like a a, a more creative and playful imaginative like community based place then like you can start with your thing or whatever your it is you're presenting or whatever it is that you're you're giving or, or doing and and display it there and and perhaps it can transcend in like small ways absolutely absolutely and like we each have our own different calling whether we're working at the post office or teaching movement or or driving a bus or working in the bank like there's something that we are called to do and through that we can offer um or maybe it's not, maybe like the job is just a job, but the offering happens elsewhere outside, like playing music or uh, gathering like neighbors for meetings. Like there's always that offering. And, and the more our actions um, treat others as a reflection of the self, and the more our abundance is inclusive of others, the more everyone grows. Mm -hmm. it, there's not this like losing mentality or lacking mentality. Right. And then to take it even a step further, I feel like uh, I've read a couple books now about like, um, like indigenous cultures and they, you know, that goes, from my understanding, it goes past just human to human. Then it's also like humans and every piece of nature as like one, yeah. one thing together where it's like, it, it's never an us and them. It's just an us. Yeah, there's a, a collective consciousness. Um, and I think every human being experiences it to some degree, some like very deeply and completely and others just a little bit, maybe they'd have a pet or they look into the eyes of a baby and see that purity or, or they see a scenery that brings that awe. Like it could just be like a, a big tree or a sunset and that thoughtless moment uh, where there's just presence and connection like that's always there 
but most of us, you know, humans are, are often just stuck in our minds and with the self-identification as separate from everything else. So do you, I know you have to run, I don't want to take up too much time here. Um, so then do you do any form of like meditation or anything? Yeah, definitely. Um, that, that's been for the last, I think three years or so, um, like a central practice and focus for me. It's been without any comparison to anything in this world, the most transformative. Um, and I think it's because of that, that it, it's opened up and guided me through like all the journeys, the worldly journeys that I've had to take to grow in the world as well. Um, so I meditate definitely twice a day um, and like, like the daily life events are also opportunities for spiritual practice to see like, oh, am I operating from my old conditionings or can I start to like change that? Um, but yeah, meditation has been like central. I, I have a guru in India who until COVID hit as seeing at least twice a year. And we have like group Zoom sessions um, twice a month. And that's been like, that's, a, that's changed everything for me. And it would, I, I could drop like most physical practice, but I, I wouldn't drop meditation practice. Who, who is the guru in India? Um, his name is Rajiv Kapoor. Um, and he, he has his like group of students, very dedicated students that he, he guides. Um, yeah, he's, he's an amazing being. <laughs> amazing. I'm ex I'm excited to, uh, to look him up after this. Yeah. Yeah. And I can send you links and, and stuff. He's got stuff on YouTube and his website. He's written a lot and a few uh, books and translations as well. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely send that to me. I actually feel like uh, after talking to you, I feel like we have a few things we could send back and forth to exchange after this. I have uh yeah, I feel like we've got even more to talk about. Amazing. Um, um, if people are interested in practicing with you in person or even the potential of like practicing with you online or anything like what is what is what what can happen and, and how and, and where can they find you um well i'm on social media so i have uh like i i do use instagram <laughs> as much as i like try to um like remind myself to use it uh i think it's soy she human patterns and Facebook also, I think, should be the same name. Um, and I'm working at Praxis in Canberra. So I teach like classes there, uh, like most days of the week. Um, and then I have my website, humanpatterns.net. Um, I'm not really doing like online stuff, but I do retreats um, around Australia and I have done them overseas. But obviously, right now, that's not um, happening. <laughs> Well, listen, I feel like once things can happen again, we should, uh, we should organize a retreat here in the United States that would or, be or, or, or in Canada <laughs> or in Canada or somewhere around here. And we'll like, uh, maybe grab someone else and like, go, you know, get a few teachers and go do, do a retreat. 
yeah that'd be that'd be amazing definitely want to like visit and explore that part of the world um my partner's from arizona and i've been once to la for a mm. short trip but yeah it's really foreign to me and it'd be amazing yeah well it will, you know i'm in boulder now but we'll definitely have to at least get you to new york yeah yeah, yeah. both locations are like dream destinations Oh man. Well, it's definitely going to happen. And I've never been to Australia. So as soon as uh, I can go there now, like a big road trip with your missus. Um, it's amazing. <laughs> yeah. That was that, that. I mean, we got to, we were in Bali once and I remember us being like, Oh, well, we're so close. We should like, we should make it happen. And we didn't, we didn't pull the trigger, but if we had known there would have been a pandemic around the corner, maybe we would have <laughs> taken the extra two weeks and just gone to Australia as well. But now where it's added to the list, especially knowing that uh, that you're there teaching. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, I'm sure we'll meet in person soon enough. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, it really has been uh, really special to get to chat with you. Yeah, same for me. I'm, I'm so glad uh, that, that you reached out and we've done this. And yeah, we'll be in touch. Totally. We'll talk soon. Thank you, Soishi. Yeah, thanks so much, Kyle. <laughs> Have a good Bye. day. You too.